0: On today's episode of the Narrative Monopoly podcast, we have Josh Holmes. Josh was the chief of staff to Senator Mitch McConnell for a number of years back in the early 2010s, and he still maintains a very active role in the Republican Party. And so today's episode is entirely centered around the future of the GOP, as Josh sees it. So I ask him a lot of questions around how the GOP should interact with the media. Um, Obviously, Trump has blown the lid off that relationship between the media and the GOP. Um, So that makes for some pretty interesting conversations. I think he has done a lot in his own right with his podcast, Ruthless. Um, And I also ask about the policies and how to recruit candidates how to deal with kind of the shifting evolution of uh, internet distribution and he goes into the history and and gives some solutions so it's everything future of the GOP Uh, I will stop talking now so you guys can enjoy. All right, Josh Holmes. Welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to be here, pal. This is great. Thanks for coming on. Today's theme is the future of the GOP, which you are playing a central casting role in. That you're also the host of the Ruthless Variety program. Right it's a now. variety
1: program, and uh, we like to keep it that way. We sing, we dance, and we entertain.
0: Which is, which is probably not where you thought you'd be when you were the, the chief of staff to
1: Mitch McConnell.
0: <laughs> but... No.
1: no, it's a far cry.
0: But uh, yeah, you know, I've, I've uh, certainly learned a lot of, of your perspective on the future of the Republican Party from that podcast, uh, along with some laughs, that's for sure. But I think you know, we're not gonna get too ruthless in this one. All right. But we do need to start with the most pressing and urgent question that the audience needs answered. Oof, okay. If you had to choose between being stuck on a deserted island with a thousand murder hornets or Jen Rubin, which
1: which would you choose and why would it be the murder hornets? I mean, I I think no matter what, you end up choosing the murder hornets because even if you went with Jen Rubin right away, you'd be begging for the murder hornets within like 15 minutes, right? I mean, this is this is a lady who's lost her damn mind and she's not getting it back anytime soon. Bring the more murder hornets, the more, the better. See what's, what's great about that question is it,
0: it doesn't offend anyone in Washington, <laughs> right? Like nobody actually, I, she she actually might be the most unifying force in Washington and that everybody just, just doesn't
1: like her. You know, what's really funny about her is that when she first got started she was at Reason Magazine, and then she, she moved over to the Washington Post because she was replacing Dave Weigel, who, who was originally hired at the Washington Post to be the conservative uh, columnist, believe it or not. like He was supposed to be sort of the other side of Greg Sargent, who does the progressive stuff. And, you know, for a variety of reasons that didn't work out, not the least of which is Dave Weigel is certainly not a conservative. Uh, so they booted him out and brought Jen Rubin in, who is like a very establishment Republican voice. And she was a big Mitt fan. Yeah, she huge, was a uh, huge Mitt chill back in 2012, right? Totally um you know anti-tea party but she was conservative and she had a she had a very conservative foreign policy and like what's so strange about the era of trump is how it has changed previous conservatives into like psychopath liberals not just like their ideology sort of changed i mean it's like flipped on its head and she's she's a perfect example of that i mean i She's indistinguishable from the furthest reaches of the far left on MSNBC. Yeah,
0: see, that's what I never got, right? It was like, okay, you can hate Trump. I mean, there's there's plenty there, right? There's plenty to work with, but I don't understand how that makes someone completely flip their policy preferences.
1: Never understood it. Like, Bill Kristol's kind of in the same boat, right? Max Boot, that's another guy that's in the same. All of a sudden, everything that they believed in, they no longer believe, and like expect other people to come along the the road with them right i mean it's just it's it's i don't know the never trump phenomenon to me has been amazing to watch because it's broken literally broken human beings and, and turn them their brains into absolute mush
0: it's so true and i think i mean obviously there's a monetary piece of it Right. Where, where you can get a nice cozy seat on a MSNBC talk show as the former Republican. That's I always wonder, I always
1: wonder, the thing is, is like, is there a shelf life on calling yourself a Republican when you're like exclusively Democrat? Like, how long is it? I mean, it may be a long time. Remember Dick Morris, who did like, I think he did Bill Clinton's polling in the 90s. I'm pretty sure Fox still introduced him as a Democrat. Right. Like twenty twelve when he was doing five. So maybe you get like decades out of it. I don't know, but these guys certainly aren't Republicans any longer.
0: I yeah, I think Jen Rubin's probably gonna get at least another decade out of it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) If she's still doing if she's still writing in a decade, this system is just completely broken.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean America won't exist, but that's (laughs) all right. Let's let's talk about the the party's relationship to the media moving forward, because obviously President Trump, I think, came in, it's it's almost been understated how much his primary win was a product of him attacking a media in which a Republican or conservative electorate really just despised for so long. And I, I want to ask you basically, like, how do you see the party's relationship with the media moving forward? And I think a really good data point on this is the interview that you did with Georgia governor, Brian Kemp, which I believe was the first national interview that he gave. I think he he did some, some Georgia interviews, but, you know, normally maybe like six years ago, five years ago, you know, he'd probably do like 60 minutes or, you know, some sit down with big uh, mainstream hosts, whatever it is. But instead he went to you and you guys had a really thoughtful conversation about what went on and you were actually able to kind of ask him. Inside baseball questions and relate it to the bigger picture, and to me, that seemed like a much more uh, palatable version of interacting with an audience for a party that has been kind of treated as a redheaded stepchild totally. for a while by the mainstream media. So, how do you see that moving forward?
1: It's really complicated, Jeff. I mean, I think over the years, clearly the the leftward drift of the media has become more pronounced as the internet has driven their their monetary situation, right? In other words, when your audience is more and more online, you have to sort of pick and choose where you get your subscribers, right? Because it's a choose your news culture. And the media, to a certain extent, has always been left, right? It's certainly never been right. It's always been left. And so there were their subscribership is also concentrated in more urban areas, right? And the combination of more urban areas and more online means you have a, a, a potential readership and viewership that is predominantly left of center. And so they all made financial bets, right? Is It's much easier to go out and sort of court a left-leaning subscribership with left-leaning content than it is to try to play it right down the middle and hope people find them, you know, because look, everybody's got opinions. And, and I think increasingly we've seen a real problem in our media landscape where nobody's willing to read opinions that are not their own, right? Um, and and the product is, is you've got a media that is driven almost exclusively by gaining and retaining uh, a left a wing subscribership. But, you know, as we found out from, Rush with the advent of talk radio, and um, I think with Rupert Murdoch and Roger Ailes with Fox, is it that constituency that's underserved there always finds some outlet, some way of expressing themselves and getting news and, and views? And you know, the ridiculous uh, uh, success of Rush Limbaugh and, and Fox News is certainly testimony to that. But I think we're at the next stage of it, right? And it's not just conservative publications, which there have been for a long time, you know, the National Reviews and the formerly Weekly Standards, Daily Caller, you know, Breitbart right down the line. There's been a lot of that. But now I think there is a, you have a beginning to get a choice in in the conservative atmosphere with podcasts like this, like Ruthless, like others, where you're beginning to be able to create content, meaningful content that people are, that are very accessible To people. And so we're battling through it. I mean, look, ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox still has by far the loudest microphone. And so you got to work twice as hard for share of voice when they're working against you. But we're not totally out of the ball game because of all of the choices and the differences in in how people consume media. So I think it's, look, I mean, you know, you're involved in this. I I think it's, an exciting time to be a conservative who's interested in media because there are a lot of opportunities to invent your own future. And, you know, I'd rather have that than a, a democratic establishment that, I, you know, has to walk up to the four producers of the evening news and write their script every night.
0: Yeah. So going direct is obviously the most advantageous option here. But I think the, you know, moving forward in the next few years, like how, how does the, you know, your, your background as being in a communicator for the party. You know, how do you interact with those producers that you're talking about? Because, you know, someone like Jill Abramson, formerly of the New York times comes out and says, you know, they're not really doing journalism the way that they used to. Now it's, yeah. it's basically, you're just on a team. And this, I mean, that article that just came out this week about, um, in the New York Times, it was like Republicans want the working class, but they don't have any solutions, and that was just under news. Like it wasn't, it wasn't even the news analysis or opinion. It was just straight up like here's a news article.
1: It was, it was terrible. I mean that that's a perfect example of the kind of trash that appears in publications. Right, it's a narrative that somewhere in the editor's suite, people want it out of there. And I love that, like you know, the, the, my favorite thing about political journalism, is how they treat everything that's not progressive liberalism as if they're in a zoo or, or on a, a, a foreign exchange trip, right? It's so foreign that they can't comprehend. So they sort of describe it in a way that's like, oh, look through the glass and you can see a conservative there. And they actually, they actually believe in, in keeping babies alive. Can you believe that? What nonsense. And then they, you know, explain to you why it is that they're so crazy and that they're all poor and dumb and they don't understand anything. That's basically what that article was about. It was like, oh, they're offering precious nothing for the, for the working class. Really? Really? Precious nothing for the working class. Ask the working class that question. Because you know what it's not? It's not the, it's not the $127 billion to teachers unions to keep the schools closed. That, that's not helping the working class, right? I mean, their definition of it is entirely through not just a progressive film, but really a kind of a democratic establishment view. And, and so, you know, for guys like me, it makes it really easy to just tee off. But, you know, to your initial part of your question, there are fewer and fewer people who uh, grew up in politics in my era that still have decent relationships with the press, if you're a conservative, right? I mean, almost everybody in the younger generation is just at odds and totally confrontational with each and every interaction, which is a real shame because I mean, when I started, some of my really sort of best friends were in the media and I knew that they wouldn't see eye to eye with me every time, but I knew they'd give me a fair shot. And, and I, I knew that we had a working relationship. I respected what they did. They respected what I did. Increasingly, the business of media has made that harder and harder for ethical journalists and and therefore harder and harder for political operatives and communicators to interact with them.
0: Well, it's funny because Gerard Baker made that same point. I think he used the term safari. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to quote him. Uh, you'd have to go back listen to episode 4 to to get that quote, but he he gave basically that same riff, which is interesting to hear, you know, you, you guys are on two different sides but you're, uh, of the equation here. He, you know, he's a journalist saying the same thing. And uh, you know, the other part is you you said fair shot, right? Like that's why I actually got really interested in journalism and you know, I still believe in what it's supposed to be. Right, like you're actually unearthing information for the public, so you can have a functioning democracy and republic. But if it's not going to be that, <laughs> if you're just going to be partisan warriors, then then it's just not trustworthy. And the thing that actually I, I think is the the worst part of it is that they still say with a straight face that we're not partisan. And I really don't yeah. care. I really don't care that they are. That's the thing. Like I will read uh, Jacobin. The socialist magazine. I, I will read that because I want to hear. I want to hear what they have to say. But they're also more honest because they're coming from a point of view where they're like, "Yeah, we're socialists, and this is what we have to say." Yeah. But when someone tells me with a straight face, "No, this is just down the middle. This is this is how it is. You know, you have to accept this as fact." When it's when it's not, you know, yeah. that that's when I get a little bit upset about those types of, types of things.
1: Well, it's so the adoption. It's not even just. It's not even just the duplicity of it, it's the adoption of the language that one party uses to try to define a situation or the other party and, and uses it as their own, right? Like a perfect example was a couple of days ago, the headline in the Washington Post about how Democrats pass sweeping election reforms as Republicans try to limit voting. <laughs> I mean, the, <laughs> it's, it's, it's nonsense. Right, it's completely untrue at its core, it has nothing to do with voting accessibility at all. Like, voter ID is not particularly con- controversial amongst the American people, unless you're a progressive leftist looking to try to figure out how to rig the polls, right? Yeah, I mean. <laughs>
0: The, uh, I mean, look, the quote in my, or the, my, my tagline in my Twitter feed, which I think it will just stay there forever is language is the terrain on which the battle of ideas is fought because if they own the the language, if you can say that, Oh, this thing is bad, you know, then Pete, then that's the framing right there. And that's how they do it. The voter ID thing. I mean, we, we don't have to go down that side street, but to me, I don't understand how they say that that is racist. Like to me, it's racist that you're assuming that because of the color of someone's skin, they can't get an ID. Right. Are you kidding me? An idea is like the easiest thing in the world to go get. How is that racist?
1: Well, of course, it's all nonsense. But the, but the thing is, is that they have to make an either sexism or racism charge when they're attempting to get sort of a, a, a entirely partisan voting system into place. Because if you had to argue it on its merits, basically, it's just a way to ele- elect Democrats over Republicans. Right. I mean, that's it. So so what other way could you possibly sell that for partisan edge? I mean, it has been. It, it, don't let's not even get started on the voting thing because that that I, I could go for an hour on how irritated that makes me.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, we only have you for about an hour, so we we won't go too deep on that. To uh, so so to close out this segment, I mean, you know, going direct, and then how do you, you know, to wrap up here? How do you deal with the morning shows or the ABC, NBC? If you're communicating through those channels, which you still have to do. How do you handle it if they, exactly what you're saying, if they're using the language that inherently hurts you, how do you combat that?
1: Well, it's, I mean, it's sad as hell because it's just, they don't, people don't anymore. You know, I mean, you've got Republicans that are are primarily uh, on Fox News and then alternative media choices. Um, And you've got Democrats with CNN, MSNBC, all three networks, all the major publications you know, you'll see more Republican interaction with print, um, you know, because I I think there's on the Hill, at least still an interest from Republicans in trying to tell people the story that's happening currently. Right. And I I think print reporters have had typically a little better um, relationship than cable TV, for example, but, but the bottom line is, is that they're talking to their own audiences entirely already. You know, and I'm not sure that we can totally get that back, Jeff. I I, I feel like we are, like Walter Cronkite's not coming through that door.
0: No, no. I mean, I think cable news should probably come with a Surgeon General's warning. But (laughs) (laughs) that's
1: just a personal opinion. (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, it has been dumbed down to the point of beyond it is idiocy.
0: Do you think that Tucker Carlson is basically – and you can use this kind of as a euphemism for all of them, but is Tucker Carlson basically like the new Lee Atwater in terms of setting the agenda and stuff like that?
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, Lee is obviously an operative. I, I don't think Tucker would would characterize himself like that. Um, I do think that he is remarkably brave. Uh, I think he is remarkably... Um, uh, how to put this... He his show is more thoughtful. Even if you disagree with every word that comes out of his mouth, it's more thoughtful than almost any other show on cable TV because there's thought behind the topics, right? It's not like, here are the three things that I know you've been outraged on because I've read the algorithms online and I can tell you're really pissed off about it. So I'm going to turn the volume all the way to 11 and, and see if we can do this for an hour. That he, he, he does, he generates a reaction from his audience with topics that are new, that are groundbreaking, that are interesting, that, that aren't the ones that are played in loop on cable news all day long. And so, yeah, I think he sets the agenda in a, in a way that, um, you know, is certainly more interesting. I, 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 still don't know if in this environment, Jeff, where any one show has the capacity of just fully setting the agenda. You know, I, I just, it, we're not in the nineties with rush, you know, we're not in the early two thousands with Fox news. It, it, it's, there's a very bifurcated. at most, you know, it's a five, 6 million person audience on the, on the best day in an electorate that is, you know, 150 plus million. And so, you know, yeah, I
0: think, cause he did, uh, and I do try to not watch cable news as much as possible, but <laughs> he did uh, basically just say, you know, Trump was not correct in trying to say that he won the election, right? Like, didn't yeah. he actually buck?
1: Yeah, it's just it's just, it's brave, right? Because it's, if you know, and this is not for Fox only, this is every bit of media, you know where the base is of your audience, you know? And it takes, An enormous amount of guts to know that everybody that's watching or listening to your show is going to disagree with something you're about to say and then you say it anyway you know and he didn't hesitate on that i mean he he said i've looked at it it doesn't look to me like dominion voting machines and the people that we've talked to contributed in any way to this which at the time was you know, pretty brave stuff. And he offered Sidney Powell to come on to his show and explain why it is that he's wrong. And of course, you wouldn't do it. But, you know, in the end, three months removed. Boy, he looks pretty smart.
0: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> some of that stuff was pretty crazy at the time, but you're right, it's, uh, it, there was a lot of pressure um it was yeah don't record.
1: get me wrong I, it was crazy at the time though i mean i'm not i'm not i'm not suggesting for a second that it was like brave to recognize right, right, the right. sky is blue i'm just saying you don't have to do that topic on your show if you don't want to you can talk about whatever the hell you want he chose in a fox news primetime, the most conservative program on the air that they have to make that statement which in that my my view that is pretty brave
0: Yeah. See, that's, that's what I think is missing from a lot of the political arena. And again, I mean, like I, I just have so much respect for people who, even if I disagree with them, if they're just playing it straight, that's what I want to see. And I think a great example, so I'm from Cleveland and Congressman from right next door, Anthony Gonzalez, you know, he voted for impeachment he was one of the 10. Right. And so I actually talked to a few people who we're really mad at him. And there's been a lot of outrage in I think the, the circles in Northeast Ohio about it. But if you look at it, it's like, okay, well, this guy really had nothing to gain from that vote, right? Like every other Republican voted no, you know, he didn't have to do it. It was, it wasn't beneficial to his district. It certainly wasn't beneficial to his political career. You have all these uh, people in the Senate race that are now calling for his head. But now I know that in the future, that guy is going to do what he thinks is right because he took that vote that he just didn't have to. And there was no benefit besides he thought it was the right thing to do. You know, I, I want to hear your opinion on, you know, how do we get more people like that in this media environment? Because the guy after Tucker is Hannity and Hannity is the type of guy. That's just not going to, you know, he's, he's going to have the people on who are the exact opposite, who are going to call for Gonzalez's head, even though, you know, they might agree in private or something like that. And so, that, that's been something that's tough to watch because that's also a big audience, right? And he doesn't have the courage to do what's right. He's just going to say what he wants to say. Yeah, no, I mean,
1: look, the toughest part about representative democracy is voters are ultimately the ones who make the call here, right? And when you step out, on a position that a large majority of your voters feel differently about, you run inherent risk. Uh, there's probably never been in recent days a, or years, a a more, you know, technicolor example of that than the impeachment vote. Um, and for those 10 in particular, but um, look, I, I think that the problem is less with how the uh, people characterize these things one way or another than it is we've, we've gotten into a a cult of personality type politics that doesn't work for the Republican party. It it works for Democrats really well. I mean, they, they, they can operate entirely. Interestingly, they're not currently, but they have for years with Clinton and Obama. Um, They've, they've operated entirely Have asked basically no questions, just go along for the ride. You know, and the Democratic Party has operated like that. But now the Republican Party, which is, is generally been grounded in in rock solid principles of fiscal conservatism, social conservatism, you know, traditional values, strong national defense. Um, you hear less about issues, you know, and and look, I I think in terms of the the party's infrastructure. And all of that, and what it means for people like Gonzalez and others, I gotta believe that we're gonna get, with more time away from January 6th and and last year's election, some of the value, the traditional reasons why you're a Republican and why you're a conservative will begin to bleed back into the base itself. And you can see it already. I mean, we're dealing with this COVID relief package, $1.9 trillion boondoggle that you can hear people making pretty good fiscally conservative arguments. We haven't heard those for five years. Um, that's probably a place where the congressman would shine. Right. Yep. And in other words, people's, what they're valuing over time reflects the current environment. A really good example of this, and, and I know this is all a little esoteric, but I think it kind of needs to be talked about this way because it's not just about Trump and not just about it. Parties are led by information at current periods of time that can change. It's very, very dynamic. In the 2004 election, they did an exit poll where they listed you know the, the top 20 issues that people care about at the polls, 18 of 20 was Social Security, right? President Bush was reelected, and he made it his number one priority to try to do Social Security reform, which is a totally ill-fated, terrible decision to make. But that's what he, that's what he wanted to do, right? We had wars and stuff going on. Not a great idea, but they decided to do it anyway. He wanted a five-month campaign, like didn't stop the presidential campaign that aggressive campaign to try to get this done. Social Security, when they did a poll in May of that year, just five months later, was the number one issue that Americans cared about, right? And in the Republican Party, it was like 80%. My point is, is that nothing is constant. It always is changing with the leadership that is provided at the time. And you, it, it Social security was never the first most important thing. It was never the 18th most important thing, but it reflected where we were sort of at, at both both sides. And I think where we find ourselves right now in the Republican party is a kind of a slow turn that hopefully involves a little bit more policy, a little bit more issue principle-based stuff than we've been used to over the last few years. Because ultimately that's when the party's the healthiest. That's when you have... You know, candidates that are dying to run against each other in primaries because the nomination is something worth getting, you know, you don't have kind of like kooks in state parties who are like way more interested in trying to censure some state official than they are <laughs> in, in beating a, a, a Democrat that hell holds the seat, you know? The,
0: the Arizona GOP trying to take out their, uh, their popular governor is something I mean, it, that is just out of a science fiction novel.
1: It's the dumbest damn thing of all time. Your, your literal reason for existence is to elect Republicans. Nobody asked you what your fucking opinion is on anything other than do you elect someone or do you not elect someone? And that, like, that's your job. And now they're, I mean, it's, it's, it's terrible, but it's also what has been sort of rewarded In the politics of the last few years. And so I'm not surprised to see weak leadership uh, respond to it. But ultimately, you know, our Republican Party has been pretty strong in terms of uh, our ability to get out of really sticky wickets and turn the page and get back to where we're at, you know, and where we're at currently, Jeff, is nowhere near as bad as it was in 2009, when we had 40 Republican Senate seats Huge minority in the House, huge minority of governorships, state legislatures, gonzo. Like we had a real rebuild. This point, you know, we're in a divided country, and you know, it sort of reflects that.
0: Yeah, I mean, how much of the Tea Party do you think is made up, kind of the the MAGA movement? Because I've always wondered that. Because you know, when you talk about cult of personality, you know, I want to ask you. Uh, in a minute here, whether or not the Republicans are now a party of big government, with with kind of what Trump has pushed, but the Tea Party was just something unlike any other movement in in recent, at least in recent memory, right? I mean, you had people on the right because you had people basically occupying huge swaths of of Washington outside the Capitol, and they were all for fiscal conservatism. It was it was kind of this this backlash against the big spending which is now not big spending
1: <laughs> when you yeah. think
0: about the what was the stimulus like 700 billion yeah. or something and now we're doing two two trillion so
1: and we did six trillion over a calendar year yeah i mean it's 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 absurd in comparison
0: yeah so how does that line run through from the tea party to the the mega movement as you
1: see well it? you know so I, this is i've been involved here since the beginning of this and so and i spent a ton of time really analyzing data on the Tea Party side of things. Um, And the conclusion that I came to, which is is sort of a perfect uh, precursor to, you know, everything we saw with the rise, the populist rise of of Trump in the last four years, is that there, there is a massive group of disaffected voters out there that are, from a values perspective, more conservative. They probably don't care one way or another on your fiscal stance, but they are absolutely pissed off that they are the first generation of Americans that have to look at their kids and say, you know, your opportunities aren't going to be anywhere near the ones that I had, you know, and that's a fact. That is a fact that that is happening. Their lives are, materially worse in terms of their opportunities, you know, where most of us, when we were kids, we were, we we're told that, you know, you work hard, you do all you can, you know, you play by the rules, success is attainable for a huge swath of this country. That is not true. Right. And if you look to, at like progressive Democrats, they've been saying this about urban epicenters for years and it has been true. That's right. That has, that's exactly the same but now you've got huge sections of the middle of the country exacerbated by a media culture that cares more about a debate about transgender bathrooms than they do about their own jobs. Right? So not only is this very real prospect of a declining life happening to you, nobody seems to care about it. Right? Nobody's talking about it. Politicians don't care. They're, they're dealing with the press. They're talking about the bathrooms, you know. And what the Tea Party harnessed was that energy in an anti-establishment tone that the leadership then slapped the bumper sticker on saying "We're this is, a, this is an ideological fit about conservatism. Reality is it has nothing to do with the ideological component of it. They, they elected a whole bunch of people who are break the system type folks. It wasn't about, you know, reigning and spending, it was for a couple of years, but they were all about breaking the system because the system wasn't working for them and it wasn't working for their voters. You know, it's sort of hard to argue with that, but if you, if you go look forward on Trump captured exactly the same sentiment, but he changed the bumper sticker. It wasn't about fiscal conservatism. It was about taking it to the man, whoever the man is, whether it's the Republican establishment or the Democratic establishment, whoever, that's fine. And that has been an available majority maker audience for Republicans over the last 10 years. They're not necessarily Republican, right? And in this case with, with Trump, a lot of traditional suburban Republicans left in reaction to that sort of becoming the center of the party, which didn't happen during the Tea Party movement, right? I mean, the, the, the center of the party held, Mitt Romney, of all people, was the nominee in 2012. And so that, that suburban sort of coalition stayed with and was available in 2016 for Donald Trump to fuse with that huge anti-establishment bunch of voters. Where What we have to figure out from here is you know, how you go about putting together a party. And we can get into it here um, that adds rather than subtracts.
0: Yeah, I I do want to get into it, but I do want to talk about something that is just so incredible. Have you read uh, Revolt of the Public by Martin Gurry?
1: No, I have not.
0: Okay. So Martin was my first guest and I had to have him on because he wrote this book in 2014, and then add another chapter about Trump, but it is the most eye-opening book uh, you will read that just it just blows your mind and explains everything that's going on. and there's a lot of different messages that he has in there, but the main message is that there is because of the information now flowing upstream with the internet and social media, the public is able to see that the elites are not infallible. And because they can see that, there is now a nihilistic trend going on in society where you have these different uprisings and, and mostly, you know, cause he says the public can be defined in different ways. It's not just one homogenous unit. It's, it's, Oh yeah, it's totally, totally. Yeah. So the tea party can be considered the public and he basically frames it as the center and the border, right? So the center is all of the elites that are already in power, anyone who has authority. And then the border is, Uh, it could be anyone from AOC to exactly what you're talking about with the tea party. And what's incredible about your answer is that you haven't read the book, but you could have basically written it with that answer, different terminology, but it's exactly what he's saying. I mean, he spent 30 years as a analyst in the CIA watching this stuff from afar, but it's exactly this burn, burn the house down type mentality. And I think that that's what we have to talk about moving forward. Especially, you know, in your lane talking about building a party, because I don't think that sentiment is going anywhere. Um, no. he he made the point that Obama was actually the first border candidate, even though in retrospect he kind of became, you know, a center candidate. And Trump was certainly a border candidate. Yeah. Vote for him was you're exactly what you're saying. It's kind of just like a, a vote to to burn the whole thing down. And now Biden is back and he is squarely in the center. So how do you build a party with that type of sentiment moving forward? And I think that does intertwine well with the, the question of, you know, has, has Trump moved the party towards these more big government attitudes that I do think are actually kind of in the shadow of this burn it all down mentality?
1: I think it goes back a little to what we just talked about and how dynamic everything actually is people are really responsive to leadership. I mean, they're really responsible, responsive to leadership. And, you know, I mean, if you had any question about that, how did the Republican Party go from anti-Russia and pro-trade to pro-Russia and anti-trade? You know, I mean, that didn't happen. It's not like the 65 million people who voted in 2012 all of a sudden switched their stances on all of that. But you'd think it if you watched... You know, sort of how these primaries are litigated, you'd you'd think that that, that somehow happened. It's just because of leadership. And I, I think here's the let me just say this is a deep breath answer because I think I think this is this is the honest to God truth. All right, this, it,
0: this is what the people were waiting for. So
1: yeah. <laughs> the the honest to God truth is we're gonna need some people in our party who don't give a shit whether they win or lose. They need what they need to do is to go out and let the chips fall where they may, talk with extreme candor about the facts of life of America. And people aren't gonna to wanna to hear it. They're not gonna to wanna to hear it on the right. They're not gonna to wanna to hear it on the left. All of the traditional coalitions that have been built over the years are gonna be built to try to protect against that message but it's a fundamentally conservative one. It's one that is rooted in the fundamentals of the Republican Party and the conservative movement over time. It is about traditional family values. It is about your ability to make a living for you and your family and improve your own community, not somebody in Washington, D.C. sitting behind a desk somewhere who decides that your cul-de-sac is better than the one next door, or vice versa. You got to take the power back from and and speak specifically about that. This isn't about the deep state. Does the deep state exist? Sure, I think it it does. It it totally does. I mean, you can see it happening all the time. But you have to actually be interested in changing it rather than bitching about it. And 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 again, there's an entire cottage industry. Not even cottage significant industries that are are running our economy that are opposed to that point of view right but all the things that I just laid out are dynamite in a bottle if you have the commitment to just keep doing it. Right. And unfortunately what we've seen in our party and I think you've seen this in the Democratic Party for far longer than the Republican Party is this willingness to sort of pull test your ideas. Your, you know, populism right now is popular, right? So you've got five or six young, dynamic, extremely smart Republican potential 2024 candidates that are not populists. Now, you and I both, they're not populists. They're not populists. There's nothing populist about them. Never been populist a day in their lives until they're elected. And they know that that's where the base of the party is. The problem is, is you're never elected president in the Republican Party by hijacking somebody else's movement. You've got to create your own. If you look, just look back, right? I mean, Bush, Trump, the first Bush, very different than Ronald Reagan. Reagan, very different, obviously, than Richard Nixon. You know, Nixon, clearly very different than Dwight Eisenhower. Everybody had their own pitch, their own authentic reason for leading this party. It's not about hijacking somebody else. You watch 16 candidates in 2016, try to hijack the Tea Party. Inauthentic as hell. Everybody knew it. They were trying desperately to pretend like they were a leader of a movement that was built without them, that actually they took a ride on, right? Trump was the only one that was selling something authentically real. He was who he said he was. And in fairness, he was who he said he was as president too. He operated exactly the same way. We need to get back to that in terms of how we look at 2024. I don't know who that candidate is, you know, and it's not like a Bullworth thing where it's like, you know, I don't give a shit what happens and I'm just going to, you know, speak truth to power. No, it's principle. And it's not, it's about not wanting or needing the constant praise from you know, the base of the party and adding, you know, two, 3% to your poll numbers. It's about taking real risks and and trying to get back to the authentic core of the conservative message. I think that we still have a lot of people who can do it. The question is whether or not anybody tries.
0: I absolutely love that because I think a point, a point I've always made is that Trump is for all of his flaws and, all of his uh, myths, mistruths, we'll, we'll call them, he's still the most authentic. Like he's, he's still himself. And I think that that's what a lot of people missed. I, uh, I remember in the 2016 debates, uh, Scott Walker would always say big and bold. And <laughs> any Anytime you hear a politician calling something bold, just run the other way. Just run the other way because the word bold is, has to be the most poll-tested word in the history of the English language. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. You know, they kind of all are. I mean, if you look both Republicans and Democrats, you just turn on cable news right now, you'll get a he- healthy dose of the poll tested language. Yeah. Warren, Warren's got the word
0: bold. But but the first the, the first point that you made there about how they have to be willing to lose. I mean, that's the thing that if we're, we're going to go real deep here, it's you're not willing to die politically and you work three miles from. A field with 400 heads, 400,000 headstones of people who died for the country. And you're not willing to die politically. You can't lose an election and and run two years later because of something that you think would be good for the country. I mean, it's just, it's at this point now where it's just so disconnected from the actual, I mean, civics, which is a very simple way to put it, but that's your job. And in a way, you know, all of those Democrats that lost their seats voting for ACA as you were talking about earlier, there was no Republicans that were willing to do that for social security in 2005. And it's like, how is the Republican party going to be an effective vehicle for these principles that you're talking about if no one's willing to stick their neck out? And I think the other piece of it, when we go back to the beginning of this conversation is communicating it. It's like, if you believe you have the best ideas, then don't hide, go on offense. Yeah. And I think, uh, weren't you the guy that came up with a uh, repeal and replace?
1: Yeah. 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 That would work for a while. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the, uh I mean, in the healthcare fight, no one was p- pitching. I mean, even Paul Ryan, who'd been there for 20 years, it wasn't. And granted, they didn't really have a plan to replace it with, but there was no argument of like, here's how your healthcare is going to get better. It was just, well, ACA sucks yeah like that's not really a pitch
1: yeah look i mean i i I am not an intellectual when it comes to um the machinery of government at all um i've been inside it too long and i know the history too well to know that like political courage when you're your average house of representative it it makes no sense It, it doesn't make any sense to die on a hill to die on a hill right? Unless it's really stinking important, you know? And in that case, and if it's a conscience deal, it is, and it, and it, it should be. But, you know, my former boss McConnell, I think has an interesting view on, on some of these things and that if you're not winning elections, and you can't, you don't just start over every two years, you know, you're building over a period of time. And if you're not winning elections, then you're not going to be at the point where you're able to do really big, significant things when you get the opportunity, you know, and, you know, a good example of that's 2017, you know, Republicans get for the first time since 2005, I guess, um, a Republican house, Senate and, and a president and they made, Good use of it, you know, they, they got a Supreme Court justice and preserved the majority of the court for a generation because they were in the, the, the ability to do that, right? Because they had the senators and the majority to be able to get there. Um, they were able to do tax reform. They're able to do a bunch of stuff. The point is, is that you're not puritanical in politics. It doesn't work that way. You know, you've got to work cyclically. There are some bad votes. There are some good votes. There are the principles that you've got to pull through all of that to define you as a lawmaker, who you are and who you're representing, and, and damn sure make sure that you're representing your district and your state. What I'm talking about in terms of the, like the big leadership, right, the, the, the kind of brave stuff has got to come from somebody who's running for president right because every it's impossible to move the machinery of government um and all of the various interests of all of the elected lawmakers if your message is to them well i'm not sure we're going to make it through this <laughs> <laughs> they just won't do it right but if you have somebody who's elected in themselves Committed to. I'm not sure if we're making it through this or not. The message that they're elected with is really powerful, and all of a sudden, all of the people who were committed Tea Party that became committed, committed Trumpism will now be committed to something else. And and I think, you know, that's a long, a really long way of answering where we go from here.
0: Look, the the top down approach is is time tested. I think it was Jackson who said that people vote for the person. They don't vote for the policies at the end of the day. I mean, people like to think they vote for the policies. I like to think I vote for the policies.
1: Well, some people do. I mean, yeah, you're just nowhere near the majority.
0: Right, right, exactly. When you're talking about actually building a, a majority in that sense. So the top-down approach, I totally buy it. And I think you're spot on. I, I want to push back and say, how do you deal with the insurgency from the bottom up which the the Democratic Party obviously has not kept in a bottle at all. I mean, AOC's impact on not only the agenda of the Democrats but even that presidential primary is very clear. And on the Republican side, I mean, you have you have a lot of these representatives that are young, like Madison Cawthorn, who <laughs> guys not uh, not the deepest in the in the policy sense. will say that. And, uh, and then you have Matt Gates, who is basically like Johnny Bravo meets Andrew Dice Clay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this guy is, is just a total cheese dick. And he is just going out there and saying whatever he can say to get himself to be popular and has gone on record and said, actually, governing is, is, is just going and doing cable news hits. So these people, and my point is, and all of this is they actually do wield real power because they have distribution. they have millions together of Instagram and Twitter followers, and obviously you know some of the the outlets on the right are, are being more sympathetic, letting them on Hannity. How do you deal with that because that's something we've never actually seen before
1: yeah, I mean look that that's started sort of uh in the late. 2000s, early 2010s, where there became, uh, you know, I mean, it used to be that if you were elected to the United States Senate, they wouldn't allow you to speak for years, right? Right. I mean, and if you ever kind of walked down there, like you were going to speak anytime in the first term, people were like, this better be good. You know, Uh, even when I started, you know, Sunday shows used to be a big thing. And the people who were on Sunday shows would be like Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the chairman of the finance committee, right? Because he was the chairman of the finance committee and he could tell you, you know, what was going on from the nuts and bolts perspective. And you fast forward 20 years and, you know, nobody's talking to the chairman of the finance committee. You know, you're talking about whoever's going to throw the, the biggest bomb and make, you know, the biggest splash. And, and it's rewarded not only through social media, but it's also rewarded now increasingly with the infrastructure of campaigns because of the small dollar difference, the change in how these campaigns are actually funded, um, you know, through social media and through small dollar. And so it, it, you're right; it's it's a big problem, um, but it's also big opportunities because it's it, you don't have to have the blessing of eight or nine sort of. Uh, kingmakers in order to make a difference any longer. You just have to inspire people and you've got a real ability to connect people on social media now in a way that can overcome that kind of thing. I still am a big believer in our country's ability to fail. Uh, Dumb fails over time. It may not feel like it in the moment but we've had a lot of really dumb political movements, political leaders, um, lots. I mean, if you look through history, it's really right. all over the place, right? This is not a new, a new phenomenon. Um, and each one of them has ended spectacularly, you know? And it's, it's always been, uh, in retrospect, everybody kind of looks back and was like, wow, what the hell was that all that about? You know, and it reverts back to the mean. In other words, like there's a certain political karma that has always existed in this country. If you act like an idiot and, and you are an idiot, you're going to get treated like an idiot at some point. Um, that's fair.
0: Ball, don't lie, basically, is what you're saying. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, last question on the future of the party here is, you know, is there anything from Trump? policy-wise that you think is actually a permanent kind of reorientation that the party moves forward? Um,
1: I certainly think that there are elements of his economic platform that are intriguing for sure. I think the Republican Party definitely has at times drifted further into corporate America than it ever should um, you know, the, the corporate tax cuts thing, I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I, I don't get it. I understand it's good for, you know, growth, but so all tax cuts are good for growth. You know, um, I've never understood, you know, how, and Trump didn't really do this from a policy standpoint because he passed corporate tax cuts, but, but the emphasis of which he put on your everyday American and trade policy, for example, I think is interesting. And I don't totally agree with the way he went about, pursuing trade policy, but you can't ignore the fact that we've had, you know, a pretty raw deal for the American worker in a lot of different ways. Um, Like I would get at all of this extremely differently through the tax code than Trump did, but the sentiment that he has behind it, I think is right. And I think does pull through, you know, and everybody's talking about how he's brought working class voters. And I think he has, by the way, he's talking about it. But Republicans have had a lot of success with working class voters for a long time, you know? I mean, like if your Mr. Establishment is Mitch McConnell, he's won Kentucky eight times, you know? I mean, if you've been to Kentucky, there's a lot of working class there. There are people who understand that, you know, they understand economic policy deeply in a way that relates to them and their families. And so Republicans understand it. It's how we talk about it and how we deal with it. And then try to push back a little bit on the corporate culture that has you know, the Chamber of Commerce view of the world, which is not helpful. It's, that's not the Republican Party. It certainly isn't the, the one that I subscribe to. Um, I'm, I'm all for as low a taxes as you could possibly get and, and, and huge economic growth. Lower the burden on everybody in this country and get out of their way. Allow people to be Americans, which is inherently a winner for the last 300 some odd years. So, I mean, it's just for me, this is a reorienting that could have positive benefits in terms of how we talk about certain things that matter. You know, I mean, if you just rewind the tape on 2012 when we were talking about the Opportunity Society. Now think about what we just talked about about all the people who know there is no opportunity in their, in their town. Like they yeah. watch their manufacturing, manufacturing get closed.
0: Yeah, see, I'm, I mean, I, I've been a, a Mitt Romney fan since he ran, but it's definitely true that he is the guy that looks like he's about to fire you. Yeah. He's, You know, Obama was the guy that is going to go get drinks with you after work. Romney was probably going to
1: lay you off. But, but my point is even beyond the look, like opportunity is really inspiring for people like us from a, you know, you know, I don't know you that well, but for me, you know, middle-class upbringing in the Midwest that I did have an opportunity, you know, and it was obvious that, that if I really worked my ass off, I could get somewhere. I'm not sure that two thirds of the country believes that. And so you've got to figure out a way to actually provide reason for hope. And it's, it's, if you could inverse Trump's message to not, you know, hate everybody and that everybody's a victim and that you're uh, you've been put in this situation because everybody has failed you invert it to a, here's a plan that I think is, is able to get us back on the right track. Cause you've been done wrong. If you could provide some, some opportunity for, for a, a message of, um, you know, something to run through the tape rather than constantly be afraid of everything. Now it's easier to say, cause in politics, it's, it's much easier to fear is a greater motivator than, than hope. But if you look at those really good campaigns, hope's a big part of it too.
0: Obama's hope and change. I mean, you can't, uh, you really can't look back at that 2008 campaign and not uh, not be pretty impressed. And it's hard yeah, not I mean, to, Clinton, to get on Clinton's, that bandwagon.
1: Clinton's '92 speech was, you know, he was from Hope, Arkansas, and it was a place called Hope was his was the name of it. You know, and so maybe Hope's not the right word for a Republican, but I'm just saying the sentiment resonates far beyond party lines.
0: Well, I do think what's really crazy and i i only saw the data i haven't really seen anyone analyze this but all of these border counties uh in texas and uh even in i think it's in south florida too but in texas right along the texas border where trump was like 20 point he he increased by like 20 points i mean that has to that has to do with some sort of you know his message of like american exceptionalism basically
1: yeah, well, and also this just blind narrative that isn't true about Hispanic Americans, which is that they're all these woke, progressive folks who are Latin X and are are interested in, you know, open borders and progressive economic policy. That's nonsense. If you've ever looked at looked at a poll, it's just completely not true. And particularly as Hispanic communities become more established. In their own community, like in their own states, they are more conservative than your average suburbanite. I mean, this is a this is a very culturally conservative in a lot of different parts of the country, whether it's South Texas or you know, South Florida or parts of Arizona and New Mexico and Colorado and Nevada. Um, any place where there is a, a, a Hispanic population that is are are leaders of their own community in established communities and, and have their own, you know, businesses and, and schools and, and all that. Like don't Democrats treat these people as though they're literally illegal immigrants. They do. I mean, I
0: I have always wondered that literally in a, in a, in a very simple sense. It's like, I don't understand why if someone is here First generation, second generation, third generation, and they're Hispanic. Why is illegal immigration like their biggest issue if they came here legally?
1: Yeah, it's just not. Now, Democrats have always had a point when you get Republicans who sound like they don't like Hispanics, right? They may be talking about immigration policy. But you don't have to be a caustic about it. You can be very realist and very conservative all at the same time. And I think Democrats have been given a gift by Republicans who do that. Make, make Republicans sound like they're anti-Hispanic, which is absurd. And if anybody is, they ought to get the hell out of the party. But from the policy perspective that Democrats are offering, I, I can't understand how you'd ever be okay with that. It's like, I'm sorry, you're not distinguishing a a, a a government that we've held in this town in Texas for 30 years from somebody who's just crossed the border yesterday. I mean, come on. It's nonsense. It's nonsense, but you know, the national media back to our initial. You know, <laughs> the, uh, I think,
0: I, I think the one overture towards the Hispanic community that, that may have actually increased Trump's gains was the, the tweet with the taco bowl in the, <laughs> In trump Tower oh, <laughs> like, yeah i I love it he uh I, I you know one thing that is actually kind of upsetting is uh, is is that uh he they didn't leave up the uh, archive of the trump oh, I mean I and you can ma- you can make a serious argument about this from a political history type deal like people should be able to study that stuff. Um, but then the other side is just so many funny tweets. So many funny tweets. I don't care how much you hate the guy. I don't, I didn't, I don't really care for him. But like you, you have to admit that there are a lot of hilarious Pure gold. tweets.
1: Pure gold. I mean, he had a decade of great stuff. It wasn't just in politics. It was like, you know, what do they say? A tweet for everything. Basically, every topic that's ever been discussed, whether it's in pop culture or politics he had a tweet for it sometime in the last 10 years and they were always pretty entertaining. <laughs> the,
0: uh, the only, I only see fat people drinking diet Coke <laughs> Follow, followed by, followed by like screw screw Coke, but I'll still keep drinking that garbage. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't put two and two together.
1: Yeah. I and mean, he's a huge diet Coke fan, right? It's just like the funniest, the funniest thing. I mean, I will say this about Trump. He's very entertaining. Yes. No. No. No.
0: That is. I had. I had a very long conversation with a friend who works uh, in the Senate for Democrats, and there. I think there should be a bipartisan consensus that the guy is just incredibly entertaining, and that is honestly that's a huge reason why he he did so well. Oh yeah. In my yeah. Opinion.
1: Yeah. No. I mean, look. There's a lot of people, as evidenced by the vote totals, both for and against, in November there's a lot of people that were engaged in politics that had never been engaged before. I mean, we'll see how that works going forward. I I tend to think the more people who pay attention to stuff, the better it is for conservatives, which runs across the, uh, the, the narrative the Democrats have out there about, you know, Republicans not wanting people to vote.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it'll be interesting heading into 22. And I think that you just, you just laid out a good blueprint. So anyone who's interested in that should, should listen to this. So, um, Let me let me get a quick quote on on uh, the filibuster since you're a Senate guy, and yeah. then I'm going to sign you out of here with the three questions that you always ask everyone. No, oh. on your show, ruthless. Oh, you
1: turned the tables on me.
0: Oh yeah, that's what we do on this on, on this program.
1: Here's the thing I, I I will I will comply. I will comply. Uh. I've been hesitant to do this because I don't want our guests doing any research and trying to figure out what the right answer is. Right. Yeah, because you don't
0: want them to game the system.
1: Yeah. It's not necessarily my answer, but I, I will comply. I'll play along. Okay. Play. Well,
0: let's, let me, let me get the, the 30 seconds. Are they going to, is the filibuster going to get repealed and, uh, how devastating would that be?
1: So I don't think the Democrats are going to be able to do it this year. Um, I think if they did this year with Manchin and Cinema going back on their promises, it would certainly be the end of not just their careers, but many other Senate Democrats who have not thought this through entirely. I mean, we're ripe with examples of the last 20 years where people take votes that, you know, polarize um, lawmaking and almost invariably they're just killed in the elections on that. And 2022, I mean, Republicans could be so lucky as to have Democrats go down that road. But from the country standpoint, it's really dangerous. I mean, really dangerous. And I know people who don't follow this stuff say, you know, it's a procedural thing. What difference does it make? It makes a huge difference because the Senate's really not intended to be the House of Representatives. It it is is intended to be entirely immune to the sort of passions of the day and the whims of each election cycle. That's why they have six-year terms, for example. But in an increasingly polarized political environment, we're now pushed to the point where, you know, the kind of partisanship that you typically see reserved to the House is now in the Senate. And there's only this from things like the Green New Deal, right? I think that if they were to destroy the filibuster, they would add two states immediately with DC and Puerto Rico. They would push through some variation of the Green New Deal. Um, and, they, and they would pass radical, radical social engineering type stuff, like the, the bill that we're talking about, Uh, With election reform, HR one that just passed through the House. If you're at all right of center, hell, even if you're left of center, pay attention to that thing. It's the worst piece of legislation I've ever seen in my life. If you're upset that Donald Trump got beat and you're upset about some of the election reforms that happened in these states, they're all codified in that pile of garbage that the House of Representatives passed, plus some. Plus, it's like taking public financing for elections. Can you imagine? What a dream come true for incumbents. All you need is, is a good name ID and then the government funds your campaign. How the hell do you ever win if you're not an incumbent? Doesn't work. Anyway, I think the filibuster is going to be here for a year. I know they're planned to try to get rid of it. You know, um, Unfortunately, I think it does probably go at some point and it'll be a damn shame when it does. I think it's taken a lot of guts for people like McConnell and others to hold it as long as they have, um, for the betterment of the country in my view. But, um, you know, I, I think Chuck Schumer is one of the weakest leaders that I've seen in a long time and he is entirely compliant with his base. And maybe it's a threat of an AOC primary. Maybe it's just because progressive politics within democratic circles is just, you know, overrun everyone else. But I, I certainly don't think that he would hesitate for a second if he was given the opportunity.
0: I have looked out for counter arguments from you know, folks on the left. Like I listen to vox conversations. I'll listen to I'll listen to like a lot of these you know left lefty uh, podcasts and and try to read as much as I can. But I just haven't seen anyone uh, address like that central argument that you're making. And I think, you know, obviously, the founders did not put the the filibuster in the Constitution, so there's that. but in practice, I mean, I just don't see how it's not a useful tool for the Senate. It's so, more
1: necessary now than ever, right? right I mean it people assume that you're representing your constituency and not your party for starters, which is why it's not in the Constitution right i mean um as a practical uh impediment to rash policymaking if you're first of all there should be no conservative argument against the filibuster ever because unless you just want government to be a lawmaking regulatory machine like put up some barriers you don't want more laws right but from a liberal perspective i go back to the arguments that mcconnell made to harry Reid on the floor in 2014 over the filibuster of judges you may regret this and you may regret it sooner than you think
0: I, I think that that is one piece of history that has been glossed over uh, in its recent history, which uh, is surprising considering a lot of uh, people who cover politics these days are, you know, they basically think history began in, in 2009. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> That's true. I mean, I don't know. I'd like to see it go the other direction. But either way, let's uh, let's let's ask uh, these three questions here. If if Josh Holmes was not in politics, what would he be doing?
1: Well, you switched the order on me. You switched well, the order on me. I, oh, I
0: got to ta- keep you off your toes. I'm I on always your toes. start with the
1: meal. Okay, you want me? What, do I, what, will I, what would I be doing? Um, I'd love to be a sportscaster. I'd love it. Like that would be my dream is to every night go to the ball field. And, We're talking like Harry Carey? Yeah, exactly like Harry Carey. Like I wouldn't change anything from Harry Carey. That's, per- that's exactly right. That's what I would love to do.
0: with the twins are you twins yeah but
1: i i I am a twins fan a twins fan uh grew up a twins fan two world series when i was growing up had the opportunity to go to both of them which is fantastic but but i i would i would do it anywhere i could do it i love i love baseball i love all sports but I, i i would love the summer of you know touring around with your ball club
0: Well, with ruthless, I don't know. I think you might, uh, I think you might get noticed. So I wouldn't count
1: it out yet. All right. All right. All right. Last meal. So my, I'm a a big like meat and potatoes dude. Right. And people put a lot of different thought into this on the ruthless program. Mine's pretty simple. I want a, I want like a straight up tomahawk, like ax handle tomahawk smoked reverse seared nice pepper crust on this sucker, a a, a rare, but not like purple rare, right? Right. A medium, but certainly not into the medium range. And I'm very precise about that. I want a potato, probably baked with all the stuff on it. And I want a lobster tail. Oh, nice touch. I want a lobster on there. And it's not enough to have the meal. I need a wine pairing, as well. And so I'd I'd go with a red wine on, on all that. And it's uh, I've got one in mind.
0: Okay. That's, that's a good meal. That's uh, you know, I could be, I could be put down after that meal personally. (laughs) All right. What, what motivates you more? Uh, The thrill of victory or the the fear
1: of defeat? It's the agony of defeat. Yeah. It's the agony of defeat. And it's not even close. Um, I hate losing. I hate losing. I hate losing so much that I don't like competing because I know that once I compete, I, I, I'm in it till death. I I can't, I can't lose Um, to the point where I had to like, you you know, uh, when you first get to Capitol Hill, everybody signs up for all those rec softball teams and like, you know, plays hoops and all that stuff. And, I tried to do it and I couldn't, I had to quit because it was like, (laughs) I I mean, I'm watching, you know, people are walking around, not catching the ball. I mean, I was furious at myself. I'm like, God, I can't do this. And it's a, I'll be honest, this is a character flaw. This is not a good thing, but I have, I am.
0: Well, you know, who else has that character flaw? And uh, he, we just got to watch a documentary about him. So it's a good character flaw in my opinion.
1: Well, it, it has its the, ups the and ten part downs. series. It, it has its ups and downs, but it is something I carry with me.
0: <laughs> it is. I mean, it is crazy to watch that uh, that documentary and see just how much it affected him. Like even just a normal game or the pickup game, right? The yeah. infamous pickup game.
1: I get it. I get it. Like it's it's just sort of in politics for me. I mean, one of the reasons why I don't do campaigns every year is because of this. I would ruin my life. I would have. I wouldn't have a wife. I wouldn't have kids. I certainly wouldn't, you know, be making any significant money at all because I, I, I would be just omni-focused on trying to win every possible thing. So I, I mean, well, now,
0: like, now it makes sense that you were uh, in campaigns.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I for a while it did the trick, right? But you get older and uh, you realize it's tough to put all that, <laughs> all that you have into every moment of every day. Well, I,
0: uh, I'm glad the listeners got to, to hear that. Hopefully no one scouts it out and, uh, takes advantage of it because sometimes, I mean, sometimes you do get people who, uh, who come in and they're like, oh, I just have a buffet.
1: The answers are great. So the reason we have these three questions, cause I put a lot of time thinking about it. And, and honestly, there's nothing more revealing if you really think about it, you know, like you can tell where someone's from, who their friends are what kind of life that they live, like what their interests are. And then ultimately like, what's that burning desire? All of it in three questions.
0: I like that. There's more, there's more to it than meets the eye.
1: There is because with politicians, you can't just ask them questions. You never get the real answer.
0: No. <laughs> yeah. You get the, uh, you get the, well, you know, I do like to win, but you know, losing isn't too but great. Also either. Like, you
1: know, I don't like to lose. And you know, so maybe it's a little of both. <laughs> Well, what, yeah. What, what does your audience think? <laughs> <laughs> so good, but you can't, you can't just post this part of it. If you're going to listen, if they're going to scout this program for any views on Ruthless, they're going to have to listen to the whole damn thing.
0: I will not, I will not clip this interview or this part of the interview. Okay. I will give you my word on that. I appreciate that. They'll have to do the hard work.
1: All right. All right. All right. Thanks,
0: Thanks for coming on, Josh. You got it. See ya. All right. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Josh. It was a pleasure to have him on, and thanks to Josh for giving us a little bit over an hour of his time. I hope that you listeners enjoyed it. I think that you know the goal here is always to have conversations that would not exist inside the narrative monopoly. The goal is to you know be a forum for those conversations in, in governance and business and culture, and I think that this was squarely in there able to ask questions that do not come from a bad point of view or a homer point of view and in that respect either so hopefully you learned a lot and hopefully you were entertained if you enjoyed the conversation please leave us a a five-star review and hit subscribe we have a lot of great conversations coming up in the next few weeks so if you hit subscribe you'll be able to hear them so gotta grow this thing big enough where i don't have to ask anymore other than that we'll see you next week